this a few, number of weeks ago. It's a long, long story. It's one of the longest stories in, in the gospel. So I want to encourage you to continue to read it. It's 42 verses. We're not going to read all 42 verses every Sunday together. So just keep reading it on your own at home and see what things hit you and what's, what's speaking to you. So when you look at this, is it half empty or half full? Half empty or half full? I've got to give it back to Brian. I, I, I forgot my prop this morning, but thank goodness Brian only drank half his coffee. So half full. I know that's an old cliche of a question, but those of us that consider ourselves followers of Christ, if we do, I think it has enormous, enormous relevance. But instead of focusing on the coffee in that glass, I want us to think about other people. Think about other people. When we see other people, when we hear about other people, when we think of other people, are they half empty or are they half full? Do we see impossibilities or do we see possibilities? Do we see the potential they have as fellow human beings created in the image of God or do we only see the brokenness of that image and impossibilities of their current realities? Is our first thought to wonder how can we help that person realize their full potential? Like that, Dave, that Psalm 139 song is spectacular. That verse in it about that verse, uh, sorry, that just hit me because I was so, in fact, I was doing bad with the lyrics this morning because I was so wrapped up in this song. <laughs> I will praise you for the way I'm made. That, that's just so, oh, for the way I'm made. Very good is how we're made. Very good. So beautiful. So do we see people and think, how can we help them realize that full potential that God gave them and made them with? Or do we silently condemn them to the hell of their own doing? Do we think, how can we love them into freedom? Or do we judge them into more bondage? So what I want to do is see what Jesus does in our story. Now last week, the last two weeks, for those of you that weren't here or those that are visiting, we talked in depth about enemy love. Tito purposely skipped those two weeks just because he didn't want to hear me talk about enemy love. But, see, the reality is the Samaritans and the Jewish people were real enemies, real enemies. We, we looked at that, we studied that. And so Jesus, and we saw Jesus reach through all those ancient animosities, animosities and loved her. And we talked about how this command to love our enemies that Jesus gives us is not a command arbitrary thing that somehow will make God happy. It's an invitation to life the way it was meant to be lived. This is how we were made to love others. So it's an invitation back to that when God said very good. He's inviting us back to this, this life. And what we talked about last week and what we realized is that what an enemy is is just an identity we give others to protect ourselves. And we realize that what Jesus is inviting to is a, what Jesus is inviting us to is a whole new kingdom where we don't have enemies. And we saw him model this kingdom so beautifully in his willingness to come to this very real enemy and not only engage her as a non-enemy because Jesus refuses to label anyone as enemy. Like Rob Bell said, you know, Jesus has no thems. I love that. 
and to also come in need of her. And this is what was so remarkable to discover last week. Will you give me a drink? He had no way to get a drink and he was thirsty and he needed his enemy. That is the ultimate way to break down the us-them paradigm. The enemy narrative is to come in need of each other. So what I want to do today, and by the way, that, I, I think that's posted already, Rich. Is that last week's posted? Or Brian, Rich, whatever. We could figure that out. But if, if you weren't here last week, that, check out that conversation about enemy love because it's, it can be life-altering. So what I want to do today is keep exploring this divine love of others, but from a slightly different angle. Because not only did Jesus ignore the identity of enemy that he had been given, he also ignored all the other identities she had been given. And what we're going to find, in fact, as we spend a number of weeks in this story, is that this is exactly what the larger part of the story is. It's Jesus breaking down the walls that we put up to divide us. Kingdom love seeks to break down the us-them paradigm. Seeks to break down all the identity giving we do to protect ourselves. Kingdom love says we're all the same identity. People loved by God as we are as we are right now, despite whatever differences we might have or whatever differences we may have simply created. And that's why I use this old cliche of a question, is it half empty or half full? Because I think that can help us better understand what Christ did and what Christ-like living means for us. See, if we're to follow Christ, I think we have to understand where he's leading us, right? If we are to allow him to make us new, I think we must first catch a glimpse of what he is trying to make us into. Doesn't that make sense? I've used this illustration before. These are orange seeds. They are only going to produce oranges. They will never produce bananas. Ever. The image of God inside each of us is trying to birth Christ-likeness. Not something else. That's what it's trying to give birth to. Or as Paul said, to transform us into the image of Christ. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is a spirit. So I think we need to understand this. Otherwise, we might be fighting against exactly what Jesus is trying to make us without even knowing it. Because, let's be honest, it's very easy to pursue a form of Christianity without pursuing Christ. Okay? For example, here's an example of Christianity in America. A form of Christianity in America. Not all Christianity, but this is a form of Christianity in America. Now, I know this is an extreme form. And I hope everyone here can recognize that this is decidedly not Christ-like. But this is a form of Christianity that you can follow here in America. And there are many, many other forms of Christianity that can be followed, pursued, without pursuing Jesus Christ at all. This is why we've created our own Christs and our own gods. Because it's easier to follow them. Like Annie Lamott said, you can be sure you have created God in your image if it turns out he hates all the same people you hate. That's your God that you've created. That's what an idol is. That's why God said, 
way back in the Hebrew scriptures, don't have idols. And then some people took it to the extreme and got rid of crosses and pictures. Okay, fine. But I think what God was getting at is don't make your own God. Follow me. All right? See, to be like Christ is to be like Christ. He loved without exception, without condition, and without self-preservation. But we're afraid of this. So I want to suggest that instead of being afraid of this, if we can learn to trust and realize this is life, this is life, the life we're so desperately trying to have, but we're all going about it maybe the wrong way because we're just all seeking the best we can to fall, stumble into grace. But I think what happens is we think self-preservation gives us life, but for all the self-preserving we're doing, it seems humanity is more a mess than it's ever been. But because self-preservation takes life away, while giving life away actually causes us to get it. Which is just another way of what Jesus said, right? He who lays down his life will save it, and he who saves his life will lose it. The mystics used to call it death before dying. Life out of death, death before dying. It's beautiful, but it's hard. So let's do this. Let's watch Jesus in our story and see what we can learn about this kingdom love at this point in the story and what we're being transformed into. So we saw way back in the beginning this ordinary statement Jesus had to go through Samaria was not ordinary at all. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Geographically speaking, he could have went around. A lot of good, faithful Jewish people would have went around Samaria and not gone through Samaria. But love demanded he went through. So he comes to a well, and he sends his disciples into town. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. I'm pretty sure Jesus sent them into town because, remember, they still didn't figure out what it was to be the Messiah, right? We, we get that story ahead of time, but they're still in real time, and they don't want this Messiah. Remember, they're still fighting with him over being great and what he is and other people, and, they want him, and, and they're still trying to figure this whole Messiah thing out. So he knows, man, if they stay with me and this woman comes, they're not going to let me talk to her. So why don't you guys go to town? So I think that's what happens. So... The literal translation of this text right here has Jesus sitting on the wall. He sat down by the well. So he's sitting on the well. All right, so just a little background information. So they would build these wells maybe five feet across, and then they put these huge stone capstones on them, maybe 20 inches thick. And then right in the middle of those capstones, there'd be a little hole, and that's where you could drop your bucket down. And those capstones would prevent little children from falling in, little animals from falling in. It all so created a workspace. You know, because you could put your, you know, leather bag down into the well, pull it up, and then dump that into your buckets that you would then carry back into town. And so Jesus knows that if he sits directly on this well, it will require that the woman interact with him. All right? And of course she does. But now we need to look at some more ordinary details in the story. Remember I said the story is filled with ordinary details that are not ordinary at all? Here's more. So the woman comes in the heat of midday, and she comes alone. In these ordinary statements, seemingly, the heat of midday, and she comes alone, they're not ordinary. This is all about more identity. This is all about 
who this woman is. So we've already talked about her as being an enemy. What else is going on here? So let's get a little background information, okay? Most of us know, I think, we've been in church long enough to know this was a very patriarchal society at the time. And women did not really enjoy much equality with men. But the reality of what was happening at this time and in this culture was much harsher and way worse than what we are dealing with. And as sad as what we deal with in our country right now with gender inequality, it was nothing compared to what was going on back then. Okay? Bailey tells us, now Kenneth Bailey lived in the Middle East for 40 years, biblical scholar, I've used him a lot when we're exploring some of these stories. He tells us that in this time and place, a man sitting on a well would have had been expected to withdraw to a distance of 20 feet, indicating that it was safe for the woman to approach the well. And until the men decided to withdraw, the woman would not approach the well. That's one, okay? Bailey himself said he, ne he and then the other thing, in this society, what Bailey talks about, men did not talk to women, generally speaking, when in public. And they never talked to women in an uninhabited place without witnesses. Okay? And, and Bailey talks about how in 40 years of living in the Middle East, he never broke that cultural norm. Okay? So, already you're starting to see what Jesus was doing. This isn't just, you know, see, sometimes it's so hard to come to these stories and get into them from our perspective. Because we don't know anything about this. You know, we get upset about salary indifference and things like that, which is all good reasons to get upset. And, and the power men have, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still nothing like what was going on back here. This is even more unbelievably incredible. All right? So Jesus is going to fight all of that in a moment. But even worse, for a Jewish man, this was law that he shouldn't talk to this woman. Law. So the Mishnah, the written record of the Jewish oral law states, talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife. How, I might have this actually so you can read along. I do. They said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his fellow's wife? Hence the sages said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna. There you go. And I think there's people that probably still subscribe to that, sadly. So what Jesus is doing is completely and utterly revolutionary right now. This scene, this moment, is such an unbelievably revolutionary and radical moment. This is the stuff that the religious leaders kept track of, which all continued to build up and build up and build up until they said he needs to die. Because everything he's doing is breaking the religious laws. He's, he's blaspheming. He's doing all of these things he shouldn't be doing. And to understand this story, because we're going to get into another story at some point in the future here, is to understand all of his stories with women in the Gospels. You know, Mary and Martha's story? Oh, and how many times have we just heard about that, that Jesus is teaching us it's better to be at Bible study than to make food? <laughs> no. That's not what's happening at all. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet is only what disciples of teachers did. Women were not disciples of teachers. What Jesus was doing in that moment was saying to Martha and everyone else, this is a revolution. I am accepting this woman 
as a true disciple. Enough to get him killed. Everything Jesus was doing was so completely and utterly radical. We'll look at that story in depth. Let's come back to this one. What Jesus was doing in the name of love, he wasn't breaking the law to break the law. What he was doing was pointing out that the law is love God and love others, full stop. That's the law. And any interpretation of the law that says we don't have to love others is no longer the law. He was breaking the law. He was breaking the cultural expectations. And all of these things that diminished and oppressed women, and he was offering them their rightful place in society. He was saying to this woman that was walking up, I will treat you as if you were a man walking up because I don't see an identity of woman, I see a human being. And he loved her. But that's only one identity was breaking down. Let's get back into the ordinary details of this story. Women in this time and place went to the well either at dawn or at dusk. That's what women did. They went at dawn or at dusk to avoid the midday heat. And they always went as a group. A, they went as a group for safety's sake. B, they went as a group for the sake of appropriateness. And C, it was easier to lug the water with help. Okay? There were only two reasons, maybe three reasons, that a woman would go to the well alone at midday. One, she was one of those women. A woman of ill repute, to use Christianese language. Or two, she was hoping to meet a group of travelers who might take her away or otherwise help her. We know from reading ahead that this woman was one of those. One of those. She had five husbands, was currently living with a man, and was no doubt a complete social outcast because of her promiscuous ways. Identity. Identity. And this identity, along with being a woman, along with being an enemy, would allow people to mistreat her, to marginalize her, to judge her, to name her as them. And so she came to the well alone at midday, and Jesus was disgusted with her. He judged her. He told her she was on her way to hell. He avoided any contact with her. He did not let her sing in the church choir. He refused her communion. He told her she could not have any leadership positions within the community. He told her to leave the man she was living with if she wanted God's forgiveness. And generally and wholeheartedly and with good biblical reason and knowledge and doctrines and theology rejected her. Okay, some of you are listening good. Chris just looked up at me. It sounds familiar because that tends to be the way Christians are. But that's not the way Jesus is. See, what God are we following? How did this happen? So as a preview for 2020, Rich and I are going to do this thing together. We're going to go through the Gospels and look at Jesus. And we're going to use films, many different Jesus films. And I hope what will happen next year for all of us is we'll be able to be 
honest with ourselves and say, oh, that's really not the Jesus I, I know. And I hope we can get into the Gospels and say, oh, this is, yeah, this is a Jesus story. And we can untie it from all the years of, of Christianity that we've put on it. And find out that there's a reason Jesus looks different in every single denomination of Christianity because we've put our things on him. And we're going to try to just, we're going to use all these different movies from all different backgrounds of people that made movies who read the Bible and said, this is what I see in this scene. And we're going to talk about it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to next year. So anyway, back to this year. Jesus didn't act like that. Jesus lived kingdom love. When he looked at her, he saw all of her possibilities and none of her impossibilities. He refused to acknowledge all the identities that supposedly died to find her. He ignored the gender biases that grotesquely reduced her. He saw her sinfulness as a disease that needed to be cured, not as some fatal black mark on her soul written in permanent ink. He saw her as only a serving of divine love away from living into the beautiful person God had created. And in him, she did not find judgment. Instead, she found mercy and all the hope of grace. Here's Jesus, always seeing the glass as not even half full. He's always seeing glasses full. That's where my little illustration breaks down. He's seeing the glass as full. Because as Paul said, we all live and move and have our being in God. We are in God. God is in us. We are in each other. We're all in this together. And when we can see through all these identities, we can live closer to what Christ is calling us to live. Love others. Whatever identities we've given them. So, here's our reflection today. If we call ourselves Christians, that's if, if. I don't assume any of us are something that they might not be. But if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, do we act like this Jesus? Do we see all of the possibilities, the fullness, and none of the impossibilities, none of the emptiness? Do we realize this is kingdom love? Do we know this is the image that the Holy Spirit is trying to transform us into? Or do we at least want to be transformed into this image? Maybe for some of us it just starts there. Do we just want to be? I think our answers to these questions are of massive, maybe even eternal importance. You know, you know how we are here at Canaan. We, we talk, we get honest, and, and I try to push us into honesty. When you're doing something for year after year after year, and you find out it's not working, when you find out the doctrines you subscribe to, the right theology you subscribe to, is not 